0: Well, May seems like it's filled with special days. There was the National Day of Prayer, Cinco de Mayo, and even Star Wars Day, to which I paid a tribute with today's sermon title. Today, of course, is Mother's Day, a day to celebrate moms in our lives. And as you spend time with your family at the table today or on vacation later this summer, I hope you have time to reflect on how God has graciously provided you with the family. If you're a parent or you have a parent, if you have siblings, cousins, nephews, nieces, and other relatives, there are reasons to be grateful. It will be a good spiritual exercise to count and recount. All the ways, God has sovereignly arranged everything people, circumstances and events in your life to give you joy, so you can sing praises to the Lord. I picture one German couple in 16th century doing just that. I know you can claim every love story is unlikely, but it's really true this time. That's because the husband was formerly a monk. And the wife was formerly a nun. I'm talking about, of course, Martin Luther and Catherine von Bora. Catherine escaped her nunnery in an empty fish barrel, ended up with Luther, who was 16 years older than her. The two enjoyed a sweet home at Wittenberg with six children, a pet dog, and students living and learning from Luther's teaching and example. They recorded in the so-called table talks. After so many centuries, it's still a better love story than Twilight. Luther and Catherine von Bora are better than Maria Captain von Trapp, right? Now back to reflecting on God's providence. As they're sitting around at home, what could Martin and Catherine? Point to as the most important reason they ended up together, enjoying the blessings of God. Fate, destiny, coincidence. How is it that they broke their religious vows of chastity as Roman Catholics, united in marriage with children? Was it rebellion, the spirit of the times? Now the main reason they ended up together was the gospel of justification in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. To God alone be glory. Is the truth consistently taught in the scriptures, rediscovered by the Protestants? Luther and the biblical gospel he preached was an important factor in his personal life, but also a catalyst for the Reformation. And it behooves us to remind ourselves of our Protestant roots, especially as we live in Maryland with many nominal and devoted Roman Catholics. But where do we start? If you haven't guessed already, I'd like to start with Galatians. It's interesting to read how Luther felt about this book, he was so intimate with it that he said the following quote The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am as it were in wedlock. It is my Catherine. End quote. Because he took Galatians as his wife, Martin could take Catherine as his wife. Luther equipped himself with his doctrines, he learned from it true apostolic authority justification by faith, and freedom in Christ. As one commentator, G.G. G. Finlay, says, Luther put it to his lips as a trumpet to blow the reveille of the Reformation. So we're going to begin our study of the letter with the heading and the salutation. Now, this kind of passage seemed like nothing out of the ordinary In fact, you might be tempted to skim over it without much thought. But I think you'd miss out on some blessings if you do that. That's because sometimes in the first few verses of letters, the writer's offering the readers a preview of the coming attractions. Sometimes even key themes and ideas are laid bare from the beginning for our benefit. That's certainly the case in Galatians. So if you've hurried past these verses before, try this. Go home, sit down, read the entirety of Galatians in one sitting. It's not that long, six chapters, just around 2,200 words. Then come back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Appreciate how Paul set the tone and prepared his audience for what's to come. That's why in today's passage, I'm going to say again and again something like, you'll see later, Paul's going to unpack this, this foreshadows, etc., etc. But before I dive in, we should step back, look at the big picture, and get some background info. And for that purpose, I'm going to use four W questions. So this is going to get a little bit... Lecturey, but I think it's important for us to understand the background. So, the four W questions who, what, where, and when? Who, what, where, and when? Who is Paul? What is Paul's mission? Where is Galatia? And when did Paul write them? As for the details of what's irking Paul and what's troubling the Galatians, I think it's best to save that discussion for next week as we cover verses 6 to 10. So consider today's sermon and next week's sermon, uh, sort of like introductory sermons to the entire Galatians. So first, who is Paul? His background will be central later in Galatians 1. For now, I'll be selective and point out a few highlights. Paul was born in Tarsus as a Jew, a descendant of Benjamin. He proudly bore the name of the first king of Israel, Saul. He also had a Latin name, Paul, that he used among Gentiles. As a young man, he was trained to be a Pharisee under the respected teacher Gamaliel, He rose to the top of his class, surpassing everyone in his zeal for the Jewish traditions. With that passion, he violently persecuted the church. He was there when Stephen was stoned, standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Breeding threats and murder, he obtained permission to go to Damascus to arrest the disciples there and to bring them back to Jerusalem. But it was on his way to destroy the followers of the way that Paul met Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Our Lord appeared to him, saved him, changed his life forever. He set out for Damascus as a persecutor. He arrived there a believer. It must have been strange for the Damascus church to welcome Paul as brother. Just days ago, they were bracing themselves for him. Now he's one of them. And in fact, preaching Christ in their town synagogues. And when it comes to salvation, Paul was indeed like one of us. But he's also different from us. Sure, he and I are both believers, but while I met Jesus through scriptures and prayer, Paul saw Jesus Christ in his bodily form. I never heard his voice audibly, but Paul did. And there was a unique purpose behind this unique encounter. And that leads to the second question, what is Paul's mission? On that Damascus road, Paul witnessed Christ in a great light of heaven. He was left blind until Jesus sent Ananias, a disciple to him, to restore his sight. Right then, Paul's mission was made known. Hear Ananias' words in Acts 22:14 to 15. The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. But you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Because Paul saw Jesus and conversed with him directly, He was qualified to be an apostle, not one of the original 12, but as last of all the apostles, born out of due time. He saw the light so that he could proclaim the light, and immediately he got to work. He was obedient to that heavenly vision, faithful in his witness in Damascus, in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. Now, it would be some time before Paul would reach the Gentiles, and Barnabas was key to this future ministry. Not only did he help Paul find acceptance in Jerusalem, he brought him to a growing church in Syria and Antioch. And after some teaching ministry there, the Holy Spirit separated Paul and Barnabas for missionary work. Paul's first journey took him to Cyprus, the homeland of Barnabas, then from that island, they set sail for Pamphylia, located at the southwest Mediterranean coast of modern-day Turkey. And now is a good time, a good place to stop and ask the next W question, where is Galatia? Now, answering this where question should be simple. Just pull out a first-century Roman Empire map and point to the spot, Right? It's more complicated than that. Lots of ink have been spilled trying to figure out the location of Galatia. Ultimately, just to let you know, it won't affect our understanding of the letter, so don't fret. Still, I'll discuss it for a few minutes, so bear with me. The difficulty with the question, where is Galatia, is this. You can use one word, Galatia, to describe two places. One, the original ethnical geographical region in the north, and two, the political provincial region that extends to the south. What had happened was this. The Romans attached to the original northern territory of the ethnic Galatians, the southern territories inhabited by people who had never been ethnically Galatian. Now, this kind of thing still happens today. Close to home in Howard County, we know all about redistricting. Far from home, across the Atlantic, the New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce provides another example. He asks us to consider how we use the term British. He writes, quote, We may reflect that the one comprehensive term which is acceptable when Englishmen, Welsh, Cornish, and Scots are referred to or addressed together is British, which ethnically is appropriate only to the Welsh and Cornish and the Bretons who are part of another political unit. The name Britain or Great Britain to denote the whole island is a political expedient. Yet Highland and lowland Scots would rather be much rather be called British, which they're not ethnically, than English, which is applicable to them only linguistically, and even so is unacceptable.. End quote. Confused yet, but <laughs> So there's a North and South Galatian theory, and the question about where is closely tied to question about when? When did Paul write them? So we'll have to discuss both of them at once. If Paul is addressing Christians in the northern ethnic geographical region of Galatia, then we must be talking about places he first visited during his second or third missionary trip. You'll find references to Galatia in Acts 16 and 18. But if Paul is talking about the political provincial region that extends southward, Acts 13 and 14 is now relevant. We'll have to discuss the Phrygian cities of Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, and the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe. These are the places Paul initially visited during his first missionary trip. So I favor the Southern Galatian view, meaning Paul's writing to the churches he and Barnabas founded in his first missionary trip. And I do so for three reasons. First, Paul is accustomed to naming places by their Roman provincial names. In 1 Corinthians and Second Corinthians, you see Asia, Achaia, Macedonia. And so I think it's probably the same with Galatia in today's passage. Luke, on the other hand, normally sticks to ethnical, geographical names, which would explain his use of Galatia in Acts 16 and 18. Luke and Paul are not contradicting each other, they just use the same word differently. Secondly, recall that Paul gathered a collection for the Jerusalem saints from various Gentile churches. In 1 Corinthians 16.1, he mentions the Galatians, who already received instructions for giving. And then as Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, Luke lists in Acts twenty verse four representatives from the churches that gave. There's no mention of Galatia, but Luke does include Gaius of Derbe and Timothy from Lystra. In Paul's eyes, Gaius and Timothy and their respective cities belong to the provincial southern Galatia. Thirdly, uh, this is extra-biblical, but I tend to agree with the conclusions of William Ramsey. He used to believe in the northern Galatian theory himself but then he studied the Roman roads that Paul most likely used. At this time in history, in Paul's time, these major routes did not go through that northern ethnic Galatia. It was not until centuries later in Diocletian's time that those parts were developed. So for these reasons, I hold to the Southern Galatian theory I think Paul's writing to churches he founded during his first mission trip. He groups the the congregations at Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe together conveniently and collectively as churches of Galatia. As for when, he's likely writing this letter after his return to his sending church in Acts 14, but before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. I'll talk in more detail about the exact chronology as we go to Galatians 1 to 2. Thank you for your patience. Finally, let's read the first five verses of Galatians together. If you're following uh, in the Pew Bible, you'll find it in page 810. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but to Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised them from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here we have some general truths that will get us warmed up for that strong admonition you'll see in the next passage. And from these introductory words, I say we can learn two principles for our spiritual growth. These are lessons that would benefit any Christian at any time. One, recognize Paul's apostolic authority. Verses one to two. Recognize Paul's apostolic authority. One to two. Two, reaffirm Paul's apostolic message. Reaffirm Paul's apostolic message. Verses three to five. First, let's talk about Paul's apostolic authority. Now, in our times, we may take it for granted that Paul's a major figure in the early church. In Acts, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, a model for missionaries today. We peruse Paul's letters, learn from this wise master builder of the church how to be biblical church planters and revitalizers. It seems so easy and natural for us to turn to his life and teaching and accept them as authoritative. We can conclude that though he wasn't perfect, God revealed himself and his will through Paul. But as you'll see here and other places, there were certainly times when Paul's authority was questioned and maligned. So it's no coincidence that he introduces himself right away as an apostle. He doesn't always do that. Look at the headings of the Thessalonian letters, Philippians. And And even when Paul does introduce himself as an apostle, he doesn't have that extra zing you see in Galatians. In Romans 1.1, he calls himself a bondservant first. As he begins his other letters, even to the troublemaking Corinthians, he's relatively unassuming and modest. But here in Galatians, It's as if Paul's rolling up his sleeves and putting some oomph behind this title. It's like he's saying, hey, y'all, Galatians, this is Paul, and I'm an apostle, and let me tell you what that means. It means I'm sent, but not sent by some earthly king, a human source. I was not sent through a man either, as if my authority is secondhand through human mediation. Jesus didn't say to Peter or some other apostle, go tell Paul to do this or do that. The resurrected Jesus spoke to me directly, which is not something everyone in the early church can claim. My authority comes straight out of heaven, from Christ and God the Father who raised them from the dead. They, not men, are the source and the efficient cause of my apostleship. Yeah, all of that's behind verse 1. And all of that will be unpacked later. We see in verse 6, Paul's apostolic authority is something his brethren recognized, probably the believers at Syrian Antioch who knew him well and sent him. It's something that the churches in Galatia needed to recognize too. Maybe they've forgotten Paul's preaching in Pisidian Antioch. Maybe they can't recall his signs and wonders at Iconium. Maybe they haven't thought about his healing of the lame man and the miraculous, miraculous survival after his stoning at Lystra. Even if they forgot, we shouldn't. It's important that we recognize Paul's apostolic authority today. Without such recognition, we'd be impoverished as Christians. Where would our knowledge of God be without the inspired writings of Paul? Just break it down in statistics of word count in the original Greek language. Paul's second only to Luke in the contributions to the New Testament. Luke's writings, the third gospel and the book of Acts, comprise about 27.5%. Paul's firmly in second place and beats the third place John by 3%. You can tack on another 3.5% if you think Paul wrote Hebrews. Also consider how Paul is the main character in the second half of Acts. We need to recognize Paul's apostolic authority. So here are some simple applications for this simple introduction. Read Paul and read about Paul. Memorize key verses from his letters. Imitate him as he imitated Christ. Follow his journey, study his doctrines, and apply his principles. Analyze how he interprets the Old Testament. Appreciate his wisdom, and work hard at understanding him. Also be careful, as Peter warned, beware of untaught and unstable people twist his writings to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. They're still around today. It'll be clear that Paul's authority is very much tied to his message, and that leads to the second principle as we move on from the heading of the letter and look at the salutation, reaffirm Paul's apostolic message. The word pair of grace and peace is a standard greeting found in most of Paul's letters. It seems routine, but we should not miss its significance. Here's what commentator Ben Weatherington says, quote, The standard Greek greeting was kyrene, which just happens to be from the same root as the word charis, which we translate as grace. The standard Jewish greeting was, of course, shalom or peace. Paul combines the two standard greetings in order to properly greet both the Gentiles and the Jews in his audience. The same God, the Father, and Jesus Christ who sent Paul as an apostle in verse 1 sends grace and peace to the Galatians in verse 3. So we learn right from the onset that there's no grace and there's no peace apart from God. We have here in nutshell the gospel message. You can go through verses 3 to 5, word by word, phrase by phrase, and outline the apostolic message, the good news of Jesus. And that's exactly what I'll do. And I guess I'm talking to the non-Christian. We need grace and peace from God. We are sinners, each one of us. We've broken God's commands, whether it's sins of thought, like lust and envy, sins of word, like lying or blasphemy, sins of deed, like stealing or adultery. And because of our fallen condition, this world is fallen. The worldly wise will not agree with such assessment. I recall the Harvard professor, psychologist, and author, Stephen Pinker, saying this. At this point in human history, we're better off than we've ever been before. Now, if we measure human progress by our comforts and technological advances, sure, we could argue that. But we're talking about humans, and all humans, save one, are sinners. This age is evil, we're headed for judgment, and there's no escape. It doesn't matter if you're a churchgoer or try really hard to be good. Once, Apostle Peter looked at the devout Jews from every nation under heaven. These are the most religious people of that day. And he pleaded, be saved from this perverse generation. God sent a worldwide flood to, in the good old days, He'll send fire to destroy this present evil age. The fire of hell will never be quenched. We gave ourselves to sinful desires, so God must give us justice, the consequences of our awful choices. Praise the Lord, God also offers us grace. There's hope in Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself for this purpose to deliver us from this present evil age. We needed a solution for our sin disease outside of our realm of evil. The answer to our problem does not come from men or through man. If Jesus was merely a man, he couldn't save us, but he is God and man at the same time. God the Father sent and gave his Son out of love, and then God the Son loved and gave himself for us, the church. He did this to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Father raised them from the dead, Christ from the dead, and Christ ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind and bring forth the new messianic age. This plan is according to the will of our heavenly Father, and he receives glory as it unfolds in history. This heaven and earth we see will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, the Lord will fold them up. And here's how we can be delivered from this present evil age. Know that the form of this world is passing away and the lust of it, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our Heavenly Father wants to deliver you from the power of darkness and convey you into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So we must turn from our sins, self-indulgence and self-confidence. Turn to Jesus and trust in Him alone for eternal life. You cannot reach heaven by your works or efforts. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no one else that can give it. This is Paul's apostolic message. You must affirm with genuine faith. If you're not a believer, come to God the Father, to Christ as soon as possible. And for those who have already made this profession of faith, it's time for us to reaffirm this good news. And I'll end with one more thought. When we consider the authentic apostolic message and the true gospel, it's important that we do not stop mid sentence. And here's what I mean. Don't stop in the middle of verse 4 thinking that our deliverance from sin is all that there's to it. Keep reading. The gospel is not merely soteriological, that means, pertaining to our salvation the gospel is ultimately doxological that is pertaining to the glory of god observe how paul's salutation begins with god in verse 3 and ends with god in verse 5 we received grace and peace so that we can give glory to god and that's why we don't just sit around waiting for heaven Like Paul, we must gratefully give ourselves to the gospel work because Christ gave himself for our sins. We want to see many lives transformed and giving glory to God. Let's make that our mission, to take the apostolic message to the lost, just as Paul did at first and the Reformers did later, just as all faithful believers throughout centuries have done. Devote yourself to that wonderful message. Live and die for the gospel. And as we close with the hymn, let's sing about that apostolic message. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for using frail vessels for your glory. Lord, we know that Paul was gifted, uh, had many spiritual gifts, and you equipped him for the purpose of being an apostle Yet he, he was a sinner like us and he was in fact the chief of sinners and we are inspired by his example. And Lord, help us to take that message that was faithfully preached by him and others at the early church and Lord, help us to understand it deeply. Help us to rehearse it in our minds and to proclaim it to all peoples. Lord, we live in a a place in history where getting to one place from another is easier than ever. Where globalization is a major factor. And Lord, where there's a lot of uh, immigrants and migrations taking place. And in some ways you could say that the nations are coming to us. Lord, may we be ready for that. As long as there's breath in us, that we'll be passionate about the gospel. We thank you for your word. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.